text for us today is Mark 10, 46 to 52. Then they came to Jericho as Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city. A blind man, Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet. But he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, call him. So they called to the blind man, cheer up on your feet. He's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus. Your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. This is the gospel of the Lord. So this is the last text in this middle section of Mark's gospel. Remember, we've said Mark basically breaks into three sections. You have the first section, which talks about Jesus as the Messiah, the second section that talks about discipleship of this Jesus, the Messiah, and then finally, the last section talks about Holy Week, that last seven days of Jesus' life. And so this is the last of the texts in that middle discipleship section. And because of that, it has a lot to teach us, not just from the text itself, but in the context of that greater section of Mark. So what I want to do today is I want to walk through the text itself and pull out what the text is teaching us, but then I also want to back up to a 30,000-foot view and see how this text influences all the texts around it. Because Mark very specifically puts this text at this spot in his gospel to make a larger point about what discipleship of Jesus looks like. So that's where we're going today. Let's walk through the text. As they're going to Jericho, Jesus sees this man, or this man is sitting by the side of the road. His name is Bartimaeus. Um, I think it's interesting that Mark chooses to name this man. You know, if you're making up a story that's not a true story, in general, you don't use proper names because you don't want people to be able to fact check you. So let's just say, hypothetically, Mark is, you know, in the second or in the first century, and he's trying to make up this story about Jesus, about how Jesus had the power to heal blind people. If he was making it up, he wouldn't include somebody's name because people could say, well, I I know that guy. (laughs) Or maybe that guy doesn't exist. Maybe we can go ask him, did that actually happen? But Mark names this guy, well, probably because he actually existed. And people could actually go ask him, did this actually happen? And Mark knew that Bartimaeus would back him up, that this was the legitimate story. It turns out the Gospels do this quite a bit. Uh, Mark's gospel particularly uses a few names, quite a few names, and uh, what that helps us understand is that these stories are not made-up stories. They're true history that could have been and was fact-checked during its time. And even now, we find out that these names actually give us an insight into how true we can know the scriptures to be. Uh, For example, there was a study that was done of uh, all the baby names from the first century in Palestine, so Jesus' area of the world during Jesus' time. And they would study them and see the frequency of different names. So in the same way that you can like go online right now and find out what's the most popular boy name for 2021 or the most popular girl name for 2021 in Canada, like they did that retroactively to the baby names in Palestine in the first century. And what they found out is that the frequency of names used in Palestine in the first century 
almost exactly matches the Bible's use of names. You see what that connection is? If you look at non-biblical literature, non-biblical records, they match the frequency of the use of names to the biblical narratives of that same time. Which should remind us again that this is real history. These aren't made up stories. Jesus was a real man who lived at a real time, really claimed to be God, really died, and then really came back to life. And there's a whole lot of evidence to prove it, including things like this. So he meets this man, Bartimaeus, uh, after he finds out he's uh, on the side of the road begging. Uh, and, And when Bartimaeus hears that Jesus is going past, he yells out to Jesus. He says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now, what what Bartimaeus says here, I think, is really interesting. Um, That term, son of David, is a term that does not show up very often in the Gospels, particularly in Mark's Gospel. It doesn't show up very often. And so Mark, I think, is making a point by recounting the fact that Bartimaeus uses this term for Jesus. Now, there are two ways that we can understand this use of the term son of David. I don't think they have to be mutually exclusive. I think they both can be true. And even if you like one over the other, it doesn't matter. They're both helpful. Um, One of those is to understand that in the larger context, which we'll get to a little bit later, Bartimaeus is the picture of um, a godly disciple. He's a person who understands that Jesus comes not to save the righteous, but to save sinners. He comes to save those who cannot save themselves, not those who think that they're pulling it off and doing pretty well. And so Bartimaeus is He's got sort of like, if you want to say it this way, a more clear understanding of who Jesus is. And because of that, he uses this term, son of David, which, for lack of a better way of saying it, is kind of like a fancy term for Jesus. Um, It's a term that you really have to understand a whole bunch of Old Testament narratives to get to. And so you have Bartimaeus, this blind guy by the side of the road, who's using this this really kind of high, high name for Jesus, because in the narrative, he's shown as the one who really does understand Jesus. Uh, A second reason that he could have used this term, though, is because of the understanding of the actual biological son of David. Uh, If you remember, King David had a son, and his son's name was Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived. And because of this, and we have this recorded in the Bible and in extra-biblical literature as well, Solomon understood a whole lot about a whole lot of stuff. And one of the areas that he was an expert was in uh, medicine, he understood a lot about how the body worked and what were proper treatments for things. And so people would actually come to Solomon to sort of ask him for a diagnosis and a treatment for many of their diseases because he understood medicine so well. And so it came to be sort of a shorthand way of talking about somebody who was good in medicine to call them a son of David because they were mimicking Solomon, the son of David. Now I said, these don't have to be mutually exclusive. In some way you could understand Bartimaeus was saying both of those things. Yes, I understand this is the Old Testament Messiah, the son of David, and I also know from all the prophecies, particularly from Isaiah, that this is a Messiah who will come and he will heal people like me who are blind. What he says next then is also interesting. Have mercy on me. It reminds me of back to Mark chapter 2. Do you remember this story of the paralytic who was lowered through the ceiling? His friends dug out the roof. They put him in front of Jesus. We have a recount for us. Since they could not get to him, to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it, and they lowered the mat the man was lying on. And do you remember what Jesus does next? He sees their faith, and he says to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. And you remember what we said when we were studying this text, that 
everyone in the room besides Jesus, and probably that man on the floor, would have thought, I feel like he's got a bigger problem. He's paralyzed. What do his sins have to do with it, Jesus? But remember what we said. We said Jesus understood that 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 man on the ground, even though he was paralyzed, had a far bigger problem than his paralysis. It was his sin. And I wonder if Bartimaeus also understood that. You notice what Bartimaeus doesn't say. He doesn't say, Jesus, son of David, I can't see. Jesus, son of David, please heal my eyes. He does say that later, but only when prompted by Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? At first, he calls out to Jesus and says, have mercy on me. In other words, Jesus, I have a far deeper problem than even my blindness. I wonder if we understand that about ourselves, that we have a far deeper problem than whatever presents itself as the evil or the wrong or the bad in our life. Like if you would look at yourself in the mirror and try to describe the things that are wrong with you, what would you say? Some of you might say, you know, I've got this physical ailment, this physical pain, or I struggle with this mental illness, or I've got broken relationships, I've got low self-esteem, I don't see myself as valuable. Or maybe you'd say, I can't get a job, I can't get a spouse, I, I can't get ahead in life, I can't seem to make ends meet. Whatever you would say is wrong with yourself, Jesus would say, something deeper is wrong with you. Something bigger is wrong with you. Bartimaeus understood that. When he cried out to Jesus, have mercy on him, he understood that he had a a deeper problem than just his blindness. So I was trying to meditate on this for a second and think like, why? Why does Bartimaeus have such a a deep view of his own sin over above his actual physical problems? And this is a little bit conjecture. You don't have to believe this, but as I read it, I was struck by the fact that every day he sat by the side of the road, blind and begging. That in a sense, he had the time to think about it. He had the time to reflect on his life as he sat there by the side of the road, trying to get the attention of people who walked past. And I wonder if we don't. And that's why we don't think anything deeper is wrong with us. We look at the surface problems, we say those are the problems, we don't take the time because we don't have the time to think about those problems in such a way that leads us to the end of ourself where we realize there's something so much bigger wrong with us than pain or mental anguish or struggle. Do you believe that something deeper is wrong with you? Or do you see life a lot like Pac-Man? Remember this game? What happens in Pac-Man? Pac-Man runs around, I don't even know what he does, hovers or floats or something around the little course, eating whatever those things are, wafers or fruit or something. And, and he's just, he keeps, just keeps going, right? He just keeps going and consuming and biting and eating, trying to get away from the little monsters that are chasing him, that if he runs into them, everything's going to fall apart, right? Isn't this just like your life? 
Like you're constantly running, constantly going, trying to get the next thing to consume so that you can dull the pain of the actual deep-seated evil that is in your heart, running away from all the monsters who say, you'll never be enough, you're not beautiful enough, you're not successful enough, you're not rich enough, you'll never find somebody, you're not a good enough parent, you're not a good enough spouse, you're not hardworking enough. All those little monsters are chasing you, and so what we try to do is we run and run and run and run and never realize there's actually something far deeper wrong with us. Are you willing to admit it? Are you willing to take the time to meditate on scripture, to pray the Psalms, to let them reveal in your heart that evil? I think if not, you're you're going to end up completely dealing with surface issues in your life for all of your life and never getting down to the root issue of what is wrong with your soul. Bartimaeus got it. And so he calls out to Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. But you saw what happened. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet. But he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. I wonder if we have that same type of tenacity, that same type of perseverance when it comes to being around Jesus. When you understand that you have nothing left to hope in besides Jesus and his grace, you have this kind of stick to itness That even though people may come to you and say, hey, it's a little too much, could you quiet down? Uh, not in public, not among good company. You say, no, I only have one hope and one thing to hope in alone, and that's Jesus Christ and his grace. When people rebuke us for wanting to speak or practice our faith, are we like Bartimaeus? Can I ask you a really pointed question? During the pandemic, were we like Bartimaeus? When the world and the government asked us not to worship in person, and we kindly obliged, we still offered the Lord's Supper, a chance for you to receive God's mercy. But how many of us took advantage of it? How many of us, when people rebuked us and said, uh, don't practice your faith right now, or at least not like that, we're willing to say, well, within the guidelines that our government has given us, I am allowed to say, Jesus, have mercy in this way, and I'm going to, because I only hope in him. My honest assessment of us as a congregation, we weren't all that good at that. And so I ask you again, do you realize that there's something deeper wrong with you? That Christianity is not just something you practice because it makes you feel good or it's convenient or it gives you a little bit of inspiration, but it is the only thing you have to hope in. That even if something far more sinister and, and far more complete were to come against religion in this country and block us from being able to actually practice our faith the way that we are supposed to do it, would you be willing to say, no, I'm going to shout all the louder, have mercy on me, son of David. Some of us aren't going to like that message because for some of us, our God is medicine or our God is government. Our God is not Jesus. But as Mark finishes up this section of discipleship, what he is challenging you to say or ask yourself is, do I actually believe Jesus is Lord? Do I actually believe Jesus is my only hope? Or do I think he is one in a series of hopes or maybe my third or fourth choice of hope? See, your only hope. I realize that 
that might have cut a little bit deep for some of us. And I hope it did. But then I want you to hear exactly what Jesus does. Because if you're willing to repent like Bartimaeus was and say, have mercy on me, Jesus has all the time in the world for you. He stops the whole procession, says, call that man. And the, and the people go to Bartimaeus and they say, cheer up, my friend. He is calling you. Get on your feet. Go to him. And that is exactly what Jesus is doing for you right now. If you saw Jesus as second, third, fourth, or 19th place in your life for the last year and a half or the last lifetime, Jesus is calling you. If you don't always turn to Jesus for your hope, Jesus is calling you. If you haven't realized until this moment that maybe there is something a little bit deeper wrong with you, Jesus is calling you. So cheer up. Because the gospel is that Jesus is not going to leave this man either in his sins or in his blindness. And when Jesus calls this man Bartimaeus, he throws his cloak aside and he, he runs to Jesus. And every commentator that I study in this text say that, says that the throwing the cloak aside is not insignificant. Because remember what has just happened in this same chapter of Mark. A rich young ruler has come to Jesus and said, Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus has said, well, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And the man went away sad, right? So, when Jesus comes to this blind man and he throws his cloak away to follow Jesus, it is almost as if to say this man was actually willing to give up everything that he had, unlike that rich young ruler. And in this lies a test for us. Because Jesus does not ask every one of us to give up everything we have or to give it all to the poor. But what Jesus asks us to do is to test our heart and say, is there something that I'm not willing to give up for him? Even if it was my last possession, the clothing off my back, would I give it up for Jesus? This man would, because he understood Jesus was his only hope. As he comes to Jesus, Jesus asks him the question, what do you want me to do for you? Interesting question, considering it's the exact same question that Jesus had just asked James and John when they had come to him and asked if they could sit on his right and on his left. Except this time, Jesus is going to answer this man's request because he knows this request is done in faith, not in searching for glory or power. And so the blind man says to him, Rabbi, I want to see. And so Jesus says, go, your faith has healed you. And immediately he receives his sight. The glory of this text is that for those of us who realize we have a deeper problem than just the surface issues of our life, Jesus calls to us. And so we can cheer up and know that he will give us full forgiveness for all of our sins. But there is another level to this, and that is that because Jesus was on earth and proved that he has the power to heal blindness and many other diseases, we also have the promise that someday in heaven, all those things will be cured for us as well. As far as I know, none of you are blind. But you have all sorts of problems. And the promise of Jesus is that if you are willing to stick with him, to repent to him, to be a disciple of his, then, in some, then someday down the road, whether it's your death or the last day, Jesus will give you not just forgiveness, but a completely perfect life, a completely perfect body that will never die, never get sick, never be sad again. Now we do have to take a couple moments on this statement that Jesus makes that this man's faith has healed him. Because unfortunately, there are some who would call themselves Christians who take this verse and use it to say that 
well, if you would just give money to me or to my church, that's a seed of faith. And your faith is going to lead to your healing. That is a demonic lie. That is offensive to Bartimaeus. It's offensive to Jesus. If that were the case, Bartimaeus' faith a whole long time before that would have healed him. But that's not what faith does. And it's offensive to Jesus because Jesus, who had the greatest faith of any person who had ever lived, suffered more than any other person. If faith is what gives you prosperity and success and healing in life, then it didn't work for Jesus. Maybe you've heard a different form of this, though. Maybe you're pretty attuned to the prosperity gospel preacher, but maybe you miss the new age kind of prosperity gospel preacher, what some people are calling prosperity gospel 2.0, which is not that you're going to get a healing or that you're going to get rich, but that you're going to become the best version of yourself. You're going to find who the real you is. You're not going to live a mundane life. All of it, friends, is a lie. Do you know what we know about Bartimaeus after this text? Nothing. After this happened, he lived a pretty mundane Christian life. He died a mundane Christian death and went to be at the side of his father in heaven to live a life that was anything but mundane. But to think that that glory is going to come to us here on earth goes exactly against what Jesus has said for three chapters in Mark. And honestly, if we would take the time to look at this text in the original language, we would have known all that. That word healed in the English text comes from the Greek word sozo, which you can learn. You can learn to say sozo. You can say you speak multiple languages if you don't already. That word means to save. It doesn't really mean to heal as much as it means to save. And it's a word that's used repeatedly in the scriptures to talk about salvation. And so what is Jesus saying? He's saying, your faith has saved you. Which is the truth for every one of us. Your faith has saved you. This message is true. This Savior is real. And you believe in him, and because you believe in him, you are saved. Does that mean your life is going to get better? I can almost guarantee, 99% sure, you're going to walk out these doors to all the exact same problems that you had before you walked in these doors. And I cannot guarantee, because Scripture does not guarantee, that if you pray enough or believe enough or give enough to your church that any of that's going to change, it probably won't, honestly. But what you're promised is that your faith has saved you. That you have something far better than accolades or acknowledgement or riches or success in this life. You have the promise from, the, from God that you are going to live with him forever in his kingdom. Okay, so that's the text. Now let's back up to a 30,000 foot view and look at this whole section, this middle section of Mark's gospel as we finish it up. It's actually a huge Markin sandwich, like a piled high with salami and other sorts of awesome things Markin sandwich that goes for three chapters. Remember, we've seen a number of these. Uh, the technical term that um, some scholars use is an intercalation. The idea is that you have a story that starts, and then you have a, a tangent, sort of a middle section, and then you have the same kind of story that comes at the end. And that middle story is supposed to inform what's going on on each of the ends of the story. At the beginning of Mark 8, 8.22, we have the story of Jesus healing a blind man. Maybe you remember this story. He stopped in Bethsaida and he healed this blind man and he healed him in stages. 
He healed him a little bit so that he could see what he thought were trees walking around, which he knew were people, but he couldn't see them clearly. And then Jesus healed him even more so that he could see clearly. And then you get Jesus predicting his death three times. And then finally, you have this text of Jesus healing blind Bartimaeus. So Jesus heals a blind man. Jesus predicts his death three times. Jesus heals a blind man. What's the sandwich trying to teach us? It's trying to teach us that in order to see Jesus clearly, you have to understand what true discipleship of Jesus looks like. And that before you understand that true discipleship, you are like a person who is partially healed in a sense. You can see some things, but you can't see them clearly. But once you understand what Jesus has come to do and what that means for you, and then what you are called to in your Christian life, you see him clearly. You understand him. And I think this is so important for us because just because of the time and place that we are in history, we have the ability to be a person who calls themselves a Christian but doesn't understand Jesus. And so what this middle section of Mark's gospel is challenging us all to think is, am I a Christian because I think I'm a Christian? Because I call myself a Christian? Because my parents were Christians? Or because I understand what a life of discipleship looks like? I think particularly for Lutherans, this is a tough one because we love grace through faith, right? We love the freedom that comes from the gospel, the freedom that I talked about, I believe it was last Sunday when I said, you don't have to do anything, right? We love that freedom. But that freedom doesn't mean there's nothing left to do. No, we have time and skills and opportunities and vocations that allow us to live a life of discipleship of this Jesus who has given us everything for free. So if I could sum it up, What this text is teaching us is you can't and you won't be enough. By nature, you are blind, dead in your sin, unable to perceive Jesus. But the good news is that Jesus was enough for you. And not only was he enough, but he gave you the ability to believe in him, trust in him for life and salvation. And in the same way that Bartimaeus called to Jesus and Jesus gave him not just the forgiveness of sins, but complete healing, When you understand that Jesus is your only hope, Jesus will do the same for you. So, I realize this is a little bit shorter than the last couple sermons that I've preached. And partially, that's to be fair to you guys, you're very kind in listening to me for more than 40 minutes some weeks. But it's also because I want you to just dwell on this main point. You can't and won't be enough, but Jesus was for you. And when you understand that, One of two things will happen. You will get offended because you believe you're pulling it off, you're doing pretty well, that the things that you're doing count for something, or you will fall at Jesus' feet in worship because you understand that you never could have done it in the first place. And if you get to that second place, it will free you from all the anxiety. It'll free you from the anxiety that some of you young people have as you look forward to which school to go to or what career path to go down. To understand that You don't need to be enough. Jesus already was for you. And it's going to get rid of those fears and worries that some of you young parents have. As you look at your kids, you worry if you're going to be a good parent or they're going to turn out okay. Because Jesus isn't asking you to be a perfect parent. He is a perfect parent for them. He was enough for you. And it'll get rid of all that apprehension that some of you middle-aged folks have 
as you watch your kids starting to make big life choices and you start to think about what's my purpose now in life and do I have enough as I look forward to retirement, Jesus was everything you needed and continues to provide everything you need. And he will get rid of all of the worry that that those of you who are closer to the end of your life have. First of all, about where you're going when you die because the guarantee from Christ in your baptism is that you are saved. Your faith has saved you. And until that day, Jesus has a very important purpose for your life as well, to serve those around you and give them that same grace that you've been shown for your whole life. In a couple minutes, we're going to pray. And we're going to pray, Lord, have mercy, I think about 20 times. Because that's the most ancient refrain of the Christian church. As we look back on first century worship, we see that the church time and time again would say, Kyrie eleison, It's Greek for Lord have mercy because they understood that is the most fundamental cry of a people who have been ravished by sin but then saved by Jesus. And so not just today but every day, say that in your prayers. Lord, have mercy. And he will. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for having mercy on us, for allowing us to see you clearly through your scriptures, and we ask that through your power of your Holy Spirit, our eyes of faith would be enlightened to see you even more clearly. We also ask that you would banish all anxiety and worry and pain and fear from our hearts. Remind us of the gospel that answers all those things now and in the future. And we ask that you would lead our hearts not to crave prosperity here, to not look, about, look for the next thing to consume to dull the pain, but to look to your cross and empty tomb, which promised for us it is finished. We ask that all in your name. Amen.